Welcome to the Love and Marriage Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums that offer insights on dating and marriage. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Thank you, Brother Balaf. Uh, my first inclination is to uh, leave. My second inclination is to dedicate the grave. Uh, <laughs> you, uh, you always want to choose good people to, uh, to work with, and they'll be kind in, in spite of uh, your performance. I thought maybe we'd have four or five people here and we could have a little friendly fireside chat uh, this morning. I still would very much like to uh, do that in spirit, but obviously our numbers will not allow us to get very chummy. I'd kind of like to know where you're from and, uh, and what on earth you're doing here. Uh, we're, we are delighted in the very spirit that uh, Brother Balaf suggested. We are delighted to have you here, and I say we, meaning not only the whole university family, but I specifically include uh, my wife, Pat, who's here on the stand. I'd like her to just stand and be acknowledged, uh, if she would. Pat, would you nod to these folks? Thank you. You'll feel a lot better about me uh, having met her. I have to uh, tell you a little bit about how this assignment came. Uh, <laughs> as I hear the continuing education people squirm behind me, anyone in his right mind who has commencement last week with all of the presidential duties that that requires and our preschool faculty meetings and conferences next week with all the presidential duties that that requires and then school starting the week following with a major address to the student body and the establishment of expectations and all the rest. Might wonder, why would you volunteer for the devotional uh, at Campus Education Week? Well, that's the question I asked when I opened the booklet a couple of days ago and read my name. Uh, printed just here, just inside the cover, where you've probably seen it. I think we saw it at the same time. And I contacted my beloved associates in continuing education and said, I am flattered and thrilled to speak to this group. And in fact, I am. There's not a group uh, in many ways that I would rather address. But I said, uh, at about what point in the week was I going to be notified about this assignment? And, and then there was, well, didn't, didn't you? Well, didn't you? Well, well, surely you. And uh, it turns out that they had certainly agreed that I was going to speak, but uh, somehow that long trek across the campus uh, had foiled us all. I, no story seems quite so appropriate uh, with that information. As a true story about Henry Ford II, while he was uh, still head of uh, Ford Motor Company, a number of years ago was approached by a little band of sisters, sisters running a convent who, after uh, laboring for years to get a school started, wanted to start a, a hospital somewhere in upstate Michigan. And it was not to be a big hospital. In fact, it wasn't a very big community, but that was the very point. It had not had those kinds of medical facilities, and they wanted to do what they could. They needed uh, 
They needed several thousand dollars and just summoned all the courage they had and uh, made a journey downstate to Mr. Ford in his offices and approached him for a gift for their little hospital. Well, I'm sure Mr. Ford and others like him are used to that kind of thing. And he said, listen, I'll be, I'll be glad to help. I do a lot of this around the country and can't do a great deal for any one group, but I'll be glad to help. And I'm, I'm touched by your sincerity. And he wrote out a check for $10,000. This is 20 years ago, and uh, $10,000 on a first contact was more than these little sisters had imagined. And they ran home to their little community, absolutely delighted, shared it with the local press, which was a kind of a hand-run operation. And the newspaper came out that weekend in the community saying, Henry Ford, too, gives $100,000 to the hospital. Well, I guess uh, if the circulation were limited, that isn't going to be much of a problem. But they were very, very embarrassed because they lost both ways. First of all, people thought they had $90,000 that they didn't have. And I can imagine these sweet little sisters sort of explaining that. Uh, the other problem was that if Mr. Ford saw it and read about it, then uh, he's embarrassed that he has not given that much, and they're just caught in between. They did not know what to do. They worried about it and prayed about it and talked to each other about it and just fretfully returned to Mr. Ford, showed him the headline and said, we're just deeply apologetic. We will work it out in our, on our end if you just won't be nervous on your end. We just, we, we'll just go tell the people that you didn't give $100,000. <laughs> Well, he sat in silence and smiled and sat and said, that probably isn't a good thing to do. <laughs> and he thought about it and picked, uh, took his checkbook out of his pocket and wrote another check for $90,000 and handed it to them. And they just, they were just stunned. They were, they were teary and emotional and very, very grateful and said, what can we do? What can we do to thank you? And he said, really, really nothing but you'll probably have some dedicatory space in this hospital somewhere. I, I really I don't want any personal publicity. I would not like my name associated with it. You don't need to change the headline. Just sort of, in a sense, take your 100000 and go. But somewhere in that hospital, just record on a brick, on a plaque, just record Matthew 25 and 35, just the numerals and the citation. Well, they were a little bit embarrassed, uh, religious women that they were, that they couldn't quite, without Scripture in hand, identify Matthew 25 and 35, though I hear pages flipping in the breeze here where you quickly are searching. <laughs> and as they got home, like you, they opened the covers of their Scriptures and read simply, I was a stranger and you took me in. Uh, <clears throat> that's... Uh, that's a longer story than you needed, but it will help explain the state that I'm in this morning <laughs> as I speak to you from some notes, knowing full well that the television camera is absolutely unforgiving, not only today, but forever and forever and forever. Uh, for all of that, I thank you for coming, and I thank uh, our continuing education people for inviting me to give these remarks, about which I have strong feelings. Your theme is taken from 2 Nephi 25 and 26. And while I'm not anxious necessarily that you tear your pages out searching for Matthew 25, you could uh, do worse if you have them. 
than to note these passages. Uh, I want to say a word or two about them, and I assume one way or another they will come up all week long. We should not try, I should not try, I suppose no one should try, to identify a passage of Scripture or a section of Scripture that would be any more important than another if, in fact, it's canonized and accepted and given of the Lord and received of the people, then in its own way for any given person at any given time, it is obviously all very important. But I suppose that if you simply wanted to talk about general sections of Scripture that are as central to the mission and the message of Scripture as they can be, at least in terms of why the Book of Mormon was given and what it was supposed to do specifically, on that basis, if you can understand the context into which I'm trying to put that, I'm not sure that there are any more important pages in the book than those that start with 2 Nephi 25 and conclude with Nephi's testimony at the end of his own chapter 33. That's only, as I look at the pages, uh, something over, not quite, actually over 20 pages. And yet it is central to the single statement, the single definition given for the purpose of the Book of Mormon, and that is to declare that Jesus is the Christ. It is in the beginning of these pages and on through Nephi's closing testimony, because it will, in fact, for all intents and purposes, be the end of his life and his Brother Jacob will pick up the torch and the pen. It is this closing testimony that, uh, that gives us our first significant, collected, repeated declaration by name that Jesus is the Christ. You'll note just prior to the verses identified for our theme, prior to verse 26, you'll note uh, back over the page in verse 19 that in de declaring the Messiah who is to come, and this Messiah for whom the Jews are not uh, to look for any other, that His name shall be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Go on with me from there, will you? In fact, backtrack two verses to 17 and 18 and know how complete the, the testimony is. The Lord will set His hand again the second time to restore His people from their lost and fallen state. Wherefore, He will proceed to do a marvelous work and a wonder among the children of men. I'm taking enough time to stress that because these passages from this ancient book are specifically for our time. These are latter-day dispensation of the fullness of time's messages, okay? The context is for a marvelous work and a wonder, a gathering in a second time. When He will bring forth His words unto them, they need not look for another Messiah. His name shall be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then 21 and 22. Wherefore, for this cause has the Lord God, hath the Lord God promised unto me that these things which I write shall be kept and preserved and handed down from generation to generation. 22. These things shall go from generation to generation as long as the earth shall stand. And they will go according to the will and the pleasure of God. And then, with that background, the passages from which our theme is taken. 23, we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children. These things shall be handed down from generation to generation as long as the earth shall stand. We labor diligently to write, to persuade our children in 23. In 26, we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, 
we prophesy of Christ and we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. First line of 27, wherefore we speak concerning the law that our children may know. My brief remarks this morning and in anticipation of your week's activity, my brief remarks are devoted to some aspect of the obligation upon us to have our children know, to fulfill the promise of the prophets, the obligation put upon us by the prophets, to establish these things and declare them and hand them down from generation to generation as long as the world shall stand. Now, I've already suggested that in one way, at least for one passage of Scripture, one section of chapters, that that is as central to the mission and message of the Book of Mormon as any other that we find. This is a church, as Brother Balaf so beautifully suggested in his greeting to you. This is a church that declares doctrinally in canonized Scripture that it is impossible to be saved in ignorance. In fact, we turn to these very passages to skirt nearly 400 years of Christian conflict to resolve in a single passage, lest that seem too simplistic. I would stress uh, that we are yet, I think, trying to understand the full meaning and grasp the full significance of that passage, but it is nevertheless captured in these introductory verses, verse 23 specifically that we're able to bring together that long, age-old, now centuries-old conflict between an essentially Catholic world and, and, and an essentially Protestant world, though there are now many variations on both of those two, and to bring together a, a conflict of grace and works and to still talk about other, other means of salvation, not the least of which is to know something. You've You've chosen to come today to a university which has as its motto a line from the 93rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants which simply says the glory of God is intelligence and would go on to say, or in other words, light and truth, and would go on to say that light and truth forsake the evil one. You don't have to talk about this very long to understand why the knowledge is important, why the intelligence is necessary, why the light and truth are indeed tools in the great eternity for us, to forsake the evil one and to establish the truthful, abiding, exalting principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that context, the gospel of Jesus Christ takes on this great encompassing definition of all truth that God has now and will yet and is in the process of revealing to us. We set up schools. You've come to one, but they've existed for a long, long time. Let me read you a passage. Uh, first pointed out to me by my colleague Joe Christensen, now president of the Missionary Training Center. But this is from the first issue of the first volume of the first periodical published by this church. And this is their lead editorial, 1832, The Evening and Morning Star. The disciples should lose no time in preparing schools for their children, that they may be taught as is pleasing unto the Lord and brought up in the way of holiness. Those appointed to select and prepare books for the use of schools will attend to that subject as soon as more weighty matters are finished. But the parents, but the parents and guardians in the church will not wait. It is all important that children become good 
as they are taught to be so. If it were necessary then to teach children of old, how much more necessary is it now, when the Church of Christ is to be an ensign, yea, even a, an example to the world, for good? A word to the wise ought to be sufficient, for children soon enough become men and women. Yes, they are they that must follow us and perform the duties which not only appertain to this world, but to the second coming of the Savior, even preparing for the Sabbath of creation and for eternity. The disciples will attend to this subject, I suppose meaning the brethren in, in their language, as soon as more weighty matters are finished. But the parents and the guardians in the Church of Christ must not wait. It is all important that children to become good should be taught so. I don't know that they were reading uh, from 2 Nephi 25, but they might have been. They might have been reading from or listening to or thinking about almost anything that's ever been said about how the gospel has been taught and what obligations are upon us to continue to teach it. Another thing that Joe said in that same example, which has impressed me for these many years and which uh, I share with you this morning, it is the simple suggestion in light of our schools and education week and why you're here and what it means to be a parent or a child in this church. It is the reminder that this church is always only one generation away from extinction. That does not change however many decades old we are now. That was true in 1840. It was true in 1890. It is true in 1980. We are just one generation away from extinction. All we would have to do, I assume, to destroy this work is stop teaching our children for one generation. Just everybody stop. Close the books and seal up your heart and keep your mouth shut and don't bear a testimony. And in one generation, it would be 1820 all over again. We, we could hunt around and find somebody to go out and pray in a grove of trees and with the blessings of the Lord, uh, we'd have some help and we could get six people together to organize a church and we could hand, hand Samuel Smith a Book of Mormon and say, go knock on a door and see if we can start somewhere. That could happen. It won't happen. It mustn't happen. It won't happen in 1980 or 1990, but it could if we cease to accept the obligation upon us, always upon those who've known and believed the truth, to teach it, especially to their children. I'm not minimizing other help. I'm suggesting that you represent here in this facility, and we represent in part because of our assignments, some invitation to help. But while there are other weighty matters in the kingdom for the disciples, parents and guardians must not wait. Let me just suggest uh, doctrinally again how important this has been from the beginning. The idea of generational contact, the idea of not letting the truth drop for a generation, because it would only take one, and we would, in fact, have a long night of darkness. We call it apostasy. And for whatever reason, in whatever way, were our times to be different, we'd have to start again. May I quote from the second lecture on faith? We don't uh, have these as available as we used to, and I'm not sure that I understand all of the doctrine that is suggested here in its, uh, in its uh, full context. Uh, 
But this is very clear to me. These are the concluding lines of the second lecture, and I just share them with you, about generational testimony. We have now, for 56 paragraphs of this lecture, we have now clearly set forth how it is and how it was that God became an object of faith for rational beings. The question has been, for this entire lecture, why do people ever believe in God in the first place? How did it start? And that's not a bad question if you're addressing that in your life with your family or your children or your friends or your neighbors right now. The question's a good one. We have now clearly set forth how it is and how it was that God became an object of faith for rational beings, and also upon what foundation the testimony was based which excited the inquiry and the diligent search of these ancient saints to seek after and obtain a knowledge of the glory of God. And we have seen, please note, we have seen that it was human testimony and human testimony only that excited this inquiry in the first instance. It was the credence they gave to the testimony of their fathers, and I would add their mothers. This testimony having aroused their minds to inquire after the knowledge of God, the inquiry frequently terminated, indeed always terminated when rightly pursued, in the most glorious discoveries and eternal certainties. How did it start in the first place? With human testimony. How does it start in our first place? With human testimony. How does it start in the life of your child? Nowhere more clearly, more emphatically, more importantly than with your human testimony. They will indeed along the way have experiences of their own. They must. But in the beginning, it was human testimony, yours and mine and the ancients, which excited the inquiry and brought the diligent search that ends in glorious discoveries and eternal certainties. Well, we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children to believe in Christ. We talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we prophesy that our children may know. Uh, we don't need to belabor this, I suppose, any more than we are, to suggest what a break in that testimony has meant. I've already suggested that you can simply call it uh, uh, apostasy. I think that is what it is. It can be personal apostasy. It can be familial apostasy. It can be dispensational apostasy. But some break in that generational contact, given the truth that we had and the beginning that Adam and Eve understood and the prophetic lines since then. Those breaks are simply, I guess, I assume, uh, some sort of cessation in this generational contact, which we're now to uh, guard against, which we're now to preserve, and to make sure that from generation to generation, as long as the earth shall stand, that we pass this to our children and our children's children and to their children. The dispensational image, of course, is, is so close that, that we get out of that this whole idea of family and of sealing. Joseph Smith said that we might well have rendered that welding, and maybe that's a more graphic image. I think sealing as a, as a metaphor has more applications, not, not the least of which is a royal seal. 
by the King of kings and Lord of lords. But beyond that, there certainly is the image of being sealed together, locked, linked, bound, tied in a way that does not let evil in, that does not allow for personal or familial or dispensational apostasy and keeps those generations intact for time and all eternity. May I just read to you what I assume is the responsibility for the living in that as well as the dead. You all know the language for the dead. You all understand our obligation to seal back through every dispensation that we can document and ultimately every dispensation, uh, whatever the length of time it takes and whatever help we may need uh, through the veil. In the meantime, we're to work for our dead in that dispensational content, contact. What I'm not sure we have understood in those revelations about work for the dead and baptism for the dead and ceilings and why temples are built, I'm not sure we've understood the language from the lips of the prophet Joseph Smith himself about what we're obligated to do for the living, indeed the living in our own households, indeed the children at our knee and who uh, eat at our table and, uh, and pray at our bedside. Let me give you that language, if I can, from section 128. Quoting Malachi, this is the prophet Joseph Smith, and I'm in verse 17 if anybody wants to follow. Quoting Malachi, the prophet says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, I think everyone understands, especially in terms of the work for the dead, the idea of turning the heart of the children to their fathers. But what is the living meaning, what is the present 1981 meaning in your family for turning the heart of the fathers to the children? I think he goes on to talk about that. I might have rendered a plainer translation to this, but it is sufficiently plain to suit my purpose as it stands. It is sufficient to know in this case that the earth will be smitten with a curse unless there is a welding link of some kind going on. It is necessary, this welding link, it is necessary in the ushering in of the dispensation of the fullness of times, which dispensation is now beginning to usher in, that a whole and complete and perfect union and welding together of dispensations and keys and powers and glories should take place and be revealed from the days of Adam even to the present time. And not only this, not only the dispensational ties, but in our time, in 1981, on this campus, in your home, not only this, but those things which never have been revealed from the foundation of the world, but have been kept hid from the wise and the prudent, shall be revealed unto babes and sucklings. In this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. As I understand it, except as we may someday get a chance to teach it, that has nothing to do with work for the dead or sealing back through generations to Adam. That ended with the period halfway through the verse. The meaning then goes on from not only this dispensational contact, but in our day, in our homes, in our families, there are to be revealed things that have been hidden from the wise and the prudent, and they are to be revealed unto babes and sucklings. In this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. In this, your home and mine. Well, I don't know whether that helps us understand why uh, this church talks so much about family. Why do we talk so much about family home evening and home teaching? We've never 
quite really gotten into either one of those yet, but we will. Family home evening, home teaching, even four-generation group sheets, certainly family and personal histories. Why does this church take the stand it takes on things that relate to family? Things like abortion and premarital chastity. And why does President Kimball want a picture of a temple on the wall of each of the children in our homes? Is that, a, is that a sort of response to 1960s pressure or 1970s troubles? Is that really a 20th century phenomenon to sort of offset uh, movies and, and magazines and uh, trouble in the schools, difficulty in the streets, uh, problems in the community? I don't think so. At least not anything that I read suggests that that's uh, that recent. It is, in fact, uh, as old as the family of man. I had a chance to suggest last spring to some of the women who gathered on this campus that Adam and Eve left the garden for just two reasons. And as I read it, they had a lot of reasons to stay. They could sort of backstroke the lagoon every morning and pluck wild berries uh, for lunch and avoid all these problems in the community and and with growing up and and uh, all the difficulties that you and I know about. I noticed uh, the front page of the paper this morning. I just jotted it down. The front page of the paper this morning, moving clockwise around the page, had the U.S.-Libyan shootout over the Mediterranean, the sentencing of John Lennon's murderer, the official indictment of President Reagan's would-be assassin, and the expulsion of Senator Harrison Williams for his, quote, repugnant conduct, close quote, in the Abscam affair. That, the only good news was the weather, which said it was going to be hot and muggy. Uh, as I understand it, Adam and Eve could have avoided all of that if they'd have stayed in the garden, but they chose to leave for two reasons, family and knowledge. They could not have children. They would not have had children, to use the verb that's in Second Nephi. They would not have had children. And they couldn't have been like the gods, knowing good from evil. And against all of these other purposes, very attractive and very accommodating and very pleasant, against all of those, they left. To have a family and gain knowledge and with any modest leap of logic to pass that knowledge to their families. Is it just coincidence that the great biblical and scriptural stories are, in that sense, family stories? That Satan begins immediately to try to rend that course, to break the generation, Cain and Abel, that Abraham's own father tried to take his life. I don't know whether he knew. I don't know why I suppose Satan knew. I'm sure he did know what Abraham was going to be. And so Abraham escaped from his own home, from his own father's hand, to save his life. The tragedy that is not only David, but, uh, but that becomes Absalom. The difficult to family experiences that Solomon has that finally leads to the rending of the kingdom. 
to say nothing of the Book of Mormon story, which is from beginning to end a simple statement, not so simple, a profound statement about a family who entertained this sort of warring experience, uh, good against evil and light against dark, in an attempt to keep that generational experience sound. Ultimately, in the end, it was not. But for our dispensation, in the book in which it is recorded, we, we're to learn from that. We're to guard against it. And as near as I can tell, and as certain as I am, this is not a 1960s, 1970s, 1980s emphasis on fun little things like family home evening or, or personal and family histories or having a condensed schedule on Sunday that can be devoted to teaching the gospel in our homes by parents who must not wait. And if that time is going to TV or skiing or softball, then that is one of the great tragedies uh, in your life and mine. And I hope it is. I assume it isn't. Well, I have 101 things that I could say and should say about the application of personal families in that. I read something about what Abraham Lincoln's stepmother did for him that she felt the need not to wait. That's important enough that while I'll leave several of the others out, let me just share this. She was sometimes called Sally, a widow with three children. Perhaps life had been a little harsh and she would have welcomed a change for the better, the easier if it came. She thought she saw it come when a man, a widower from her past, returned with a proposal of marriage in his nice suit of clothes, talk of a prosperous farm, the prospects of a better life grew, and she understood him to mention servants and to be a man of substance. She accepted and crossed the river with him to view her new possessions, a farm grown up to wild blackberry vines and sumac, a floorless, windowless hut. The only servants were two thinly clad, barefoot children, the father of whom had borrowed the suit and the boots that he'd gone a-courting in. Her first thought was the obvious one, go back home, but she looked at the children, especially the younger a boy whose melancholy gaze met hers. For a moment she looked while a great spirit subdued the passions of the flesh, and then rolling up her sleeve, she quietly spoke immortal words which ought to be engraven on every parent or teacher's heart. I'll stay for the sake of this boy. O oh, Sally Bush, what a treasure trembled in the balance that day, wrote one whose mother was a neighbor of the boy. And Sally Bush didn't know when she looked at that melancholy face of ten years that her stepson would someday save this nation, heal a generational breach, and become the immortal Abraham Lincoln. She uttered what should be engraven on every parent or teacher's heart. I'll stay for the sake of this boy. What if it isn't pleasant? What if it's more difficult than you or the children counted on? I'm not sure that uh, Stan and Barbara Shakespeare are in the room, but I close with this. This is from their daughter, Suzanne, 16 years of age, writing of a time when she was nine. Of all the ugly words conceived, chemotherapy must be the very worst. How I hated to see the 
number four person coming, knowing that after he was finished with his part, mine would begin. Nausea so violent I couldn't keep anything on my stomach, lips so cracked and raw it was like I'd been beaten every morning, my hair began falling out, and to any girl nine or ninety, that's a blow to pride only we can understand. How I hated to be thin and pale and have people look at me like I was going to disappear before their very eyes. My parents prayed for a miracle. I prayed that it was a bad dream and that it wasn't really happening to me. I knew prayers were answered, and I wanted mine answered right now. Five long, painful learning I can see now, learning years later, the miracle had happened. I was alive. I was 14. And life was beginning all over again. I still remember the day the doctors told me I wouldn't have any more medicine and I was free of the disease. It's true I had a limp and one leg was several times smaller than the other, but I had a beautiful head of my own hair and life. Could anything stand in my way now? Well, life was wonderful. She went back to school, prepared to rejoin her friends. Uh, She began to be interested in boys and thinking of driving a car, and in the midst of all of that, the hurt came again. Same leg, same place, new examination, increased inflammation, pain that wouldn't go away, and now another type of cancer. Another type of cancer, ridiculous. I was cured. September 13, 1978, I lost my left leg about four inches above the knee, and with it many of the dreams only a 16-year-old has. I couldn't decide whether to pray for recovery or for complete oblivion. My world had shattered, and I wanted to stop right now. Stop because my leg was gone. Stop because I was facing chemotherapy again. Stop because I was once uh, once again going to lose my crowning glory. What was left? The Lord blessed me with two very special parents. How hard they must have prayed for me and pleaded that I would have the strength to forge ahead and learn to accept this happening as an opportunity and challenge. I didn't want to get out of bed. My parents made me. I didn't want to face my friends. My parents invited them in. I didn't want to go to school. You can imagine how I felt going that first day with my pant leg flapping. But my parents left me at the door and told me I could do it. And I did. Me, Suzanne Shakespeare who thought my friends wouldn't like me now and that I wouldn't be able to do anything, I learned something those first few days that is more precious than all my material possessions. I wasn't really different at all. I was still the same girl, the one who joined the clubs and had friends and loved to study. The only thing that had really changed was my capacity to understand and appreciate what wonderful things to have learned. And guess what? I've had one date, and I'm learning to drive, and I'm going to try out for the school musical. I'm getting my new leg soon, and I know there will be many hard adjustments ahead. I have had chemotherapy, and I've been sick, but I'm alive, and the Lord must have something wonderful ahead just for me. And you know what? I'm going to find it. Signed, Suzanne Shakespeare, age 16. Epilogue. Suzanne continued having chemotherapy until January 1979. On a routine visit to the Primary Children's Medical Center in Salt Lake City, a chest X-ray revealed widespread cancer cell in the lungs. There was nothing more medical science could do. Her mother is writing, How do you tell a 16-year-old girl she's going to die? Straightforwardly, with tears, with love and determination to continue as normally as possible. That's how. Time, maybe two months. Soon after she returned home, Suzanne went on a family trip to Disneyland, her favorite place. She attended a four-day forensics meet in Salt Lake. She auditioned and received a part in a high school musical. She asked a young man to the Sweetheart's Ball and danced all evening without crutches on a newly acquired artificial leg. 
She carried a full load at school and, despite a record winter for snow and ice, rarely missed a day. There began to be shoulder pains, then shortness of breath, then loss of appetite, but Suzanne would take nothing but aspirin because pain pills might interfere with her school activities. On March 15th, she began a three-week tour of the South with her grandmother. The pace of the tour and her increasing loss of strength made her extremely tired. Her breathing became so difficult it was impossible for her to lie down. But still, it was only aspirin and a determination to see the trip through to Disney World. On March 27th, her father flew to Miami Beach to bring her home. Her condition was critical. They arrived home early the morning of the 28th. She had her first pain pill that afternoon and passed away in her sleep that night. On March 29th, the rest of the group reached Disney World. These are my childhood friends, Stan and Barbara. These are the these are the kids I grew up with. And my son or daughter, sons or daughter, have not had uh, cancer, but theirs have, and she's gone. And how do you tell a child that life isn't uh, entirely Disney World? Will there be times in your life or theirs that they need the substance of the gospel in a way that only you can teach it? I have spoken of reservoirs of faith, said President Kimball, and who is to build these reservoirs? Is this not the reason that God gave to every child two parents? It is those parents who sired them and bore them who are expected by the Lord to lay foundations for their children and to build the barns and the tanks and the bins and the reservoirs of faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Love and Marriage Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on overcoming adversity. By study and by faith, come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.